0: Welcome to episode 1667 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. We're going straight into team previews today. We have two lined up for you as usual. So later in this episode, we'll be talking to Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports about the Arizona Diamondbacks. But we are beginning today with the Chicago White Sox and James Fegan, who covers the White Sox for The Athletic. Hello, James. Welcome
1: back. Hey, I wonder what became of last year's team preview and how much (laughs) of it held up. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that wasn't just you that failed to foresee what happened last year. So don't feel bad about it. This is sort of a silly question, but I wanted to start here. Do you think the White Sox feel like the Padres stole their spotlight? (laughs) Because it seems to me like we should all be talking about the White Sox. Exciting team, broke an extended playoff drought last year, have a bunch of young and homegrown players were busy over the offseason, upgraded, you know, added Liam Hendricks and Lance Lynn and Adam Eaton and others. And yet we spent much of the winter and are spending much of the spring talking about the San Diego Padres because they have done all of those things also and are even better and have Fernando Tatis Jr. thanks to the White Sox. <laughs> so I guess the White Sox have only themselves to blame for not being talked about as much because they gave Tatis away.
1: I think that emotionally they can't even start to open that door because like how do you ever close it because you know you know Tatis mm-hmm. is there, Manny Machado is there, they signed Machado and uh Padre's ownership at the press conference said, you know, I'm just glad we're not the White Sox or something like that or like we're feeling better <laughs> than the White Sox are today. I, I think they just have to kind of like if there's a map in like the White Sox front office of the United States like they just try to they lop off California so they don't have to think about it on an emotional <laughs> level. So, if anything, I don't think this offseason is as like, cathartically disastrous in terms of comparing yourself to San Diego. Then, I don't know, the last three or four, they did good things, but nothing they did specifically took away from what the White Sox are doing. So, um, it's fine. It's workable. Mm-hmm.
2: One of the, I guess we can kind of get this question out of the way. One of the, uh, additions that they made wouldn't show up on our off-season tracker. They brought in Tony Larusa to serve as their manager this year. So, what has the Tony Larusa experience been like in camp so far? And what is your sense of how how he is starting to build some kind of a positive or negative dynamic in the clubhouse?
1: It's been surprisingly normal. We're not in a position to really vet it in the same way we would be otherwise. Even watching him like move around the fields, we do that from afar. He does not have... Rick Renneria seems to have inhaled three pitchers of coffee level energy moving around, but he seems normal. It's not like, oh, this is an old guy who shouldn't be here anymore. I think the way Lucas Giolito put it to me was, the only thing I was really worried about is he wasn't going to let us listen to rap music anymore, but he does, so it's fine. Baseball players, they they seem more willing to accept this, uh, hey, this Hall of Fame guy has a lot of experience, um, hey, this guy is really old school and has a lot of knowledge. They're not as uh, squishy about those concepts as probably we are, or... Sure. At least not publicly. They all they all seem to embrace the idea of like, hey, I can learn from this guy, or like, hey, um, my, my dad thinks this guy is really knowledgeable, so I, I'll be on board too. Like they they haven't really reject like even the person who was probably the most standoffish about it, Tim Anderson, and I don't even know how much of that was about actually being concerned that he wouldn't buy with Tony DeRosa as much as like Rick Renneria was his guy, and he was slow to accept the the change. They literally had like one sit-down meeting, and now it's fine. So th- there's not really like this, um, you know, huge gap with with baseball players not being reverent of uh, you know the previous generation that just totally didn't work. And you know, I, I thought you know the things that Lisa Larusa has said about uh, bridging the divide, about he has to burn their respect, and um, you know, it's their clubhouse. So he doesn't like dictate over it. Um, and, you know. It, it's the things you want to hear. I know we all have reasons to enter in it with, uh, you know, uh, a side eye or uh, <laughs> skepticism. Sure. But it, it, it sounds like all the normal um, early season, you know, manager, team, the vibe is great this year, optimism. Um, right. So uh, it, it, there, there's nothing that's like sending off alarm bells like, oh, well, we're doomed. Other than <laughs> the fact that they've only won one, one spring game, which is kind of strange. <laughs> well, that's
0: encouraging, and I hope that continues to be the case because I think we all want to enjoy this team and these players without it getting mired in clubhouse trauma. But one other Larusa-related question: even if that goes smoothly, even if there are no problems there. Do you think there's any lingering resentment on the front office's part for the way that hiring was done? Which seemed, at least from afar, pretty clearly, to have been a, a Jerry Reinsdorf imposing his will on everyone's situation. And there is even a, a fairly recent report that Reinsdorf kept the knowledge of LaRusse's second DUI from everyone, that he was the only one who knew about that when they hired him. So Is the fact that everyone else seems to have been basically bypassed or overruled something that will linger and and cause some friction?
1: Well, they refuse to talk about it in any fashion or kind of acknowledge any of the details on or off record. So that's usually not the sign that something has gone smoothly, uh, the way where you never wanted to discuss it again. (laughs) I would say that it doesn't seem like a huge hindrance in the sense that. He's come in, he's run a spring training like a normal manager. He doesn't seem like he's checked out. Um, he doesn't seem like they're not getting, you know, if, if everything was normal ish, where a 76 year old Tony La Russa does throw his hat in the ring and, you know, wins a rigorous interview process where he beats out several of the candidates who were given an actual legitimate chance to compete against him. I think this is how it would look. It, he's not coming in. He hasn't brought the atmosphere of a guy who got handed the job, even though a lot of indications are that that's what happened. I feel like they've still gotten a, a fairly plugged in and energized version of Larusa, which you know I think if it got introduced in a more uh, healthy way, you know I don't know if we'd necessarily dismiss out of hand just because of all he's accomplished. So I feel like that's allowed it to push aside a little bit of that discussion, but you know the it, that's the root of the tree so if things start going bad or if you know his tactics seem not up to snuff when the games start playing or he does start to lose the clubhouse at some point the fact that this hiring process was compromised it, it's not just going to go away forever it, it's really because of the way this was installed was so bizarre it's it you know this this arrangement can really only work as far as the on-field results are. It's not like, you know, they're 30 and 50 and everyone's like, well, we feel really good about the process we put in place, so we're going to stay committed to that." <laughs> That's not really a situation they have the luxury of. Sure. So related
0: question about that front office. Earlier this week, your colleagues Eno Saris and Brittany Giroli published a piece at The Athletic with the headline, Can We Determine Which Teams Are Best and Worst at Developing Fastball Velocity? And the answer was maybe, sort of, you know, it's hard to do that. But using the method that they used, the White Sox ended up dead last when it comes to improving velocity. And, and this was by, like, looking at reports on pitchers' velocities when they were drafted and then what they actually ended up throwing when they're in the majors. And there was a quote in the piece from an anonymous scout, I believe, who said that it didn't surprise that person that the White Sox were dead last on that list because the White Sox, quote, are the most old school team in baseball. And then below that, it says multiple people mentioned that the White Sox and the Royals and Nationals were teams that have been the slowest to change their pitching development process. So did that match your sense of the White Sox front office? I mean, I guess if it's old school, that might bode well for its working with Tony La Russa, but maybe doesn't bode so well in other respects.
1: I would say when I was hired or when I started covering the team in 2017, I don't know if it was that year or the year after, you know, they introduce Everett Tiford as like this quality control coach who's like kind of roaming the backfields and talking to players here and there, sharing some insights. That dude's the, has slowly advanced up to the, you know, pitching director now. And a lot of the people who were kind of mainstays, you've seen a lot of turnover in their pitching development over this past few years. And I certainly would imagine that, you know, when you're doing a study like this, you know, something that's only started to turn over three years ago, I think, you know, that was the first year Chris Getz is their player development director right. as well, or four years ago now. I would imagine the changes that they've been kind of steadily making over that period of time are not going to show up when you're trying to add, like, a, basically analyze, you know, over the last, you know, how many years, yeah. what their pitching development is. I, I would say, yeah, that, that definitely jives with the reputation they have. That definitely jives with, um, you know, what I've heard from, from scouts about their development, but I think it's been in the process of transforming pretty much since they turned over their player development in 2017. So there's a lot of stuff that's been happening over the past few years that I think would probably make this analysis look a bit different down the road. And a lot of what they've been doing is obviously catching up. I I wouldn't say the fact that they have, you know, obviously the fact that they have Rapsodos now is not like mind-blowing, even if it was for White Sox standards when it started happening uh, a few years ago. I I would doubt that, you know, they were truly the most old school team in baseball today. But I would say as like, if you're, you know, doing a piece like they did, then yeah, that's something they've been working and actively trying to turn over for the last several years.
2: Maybe we can use that as an opportunity then to talk about one of the young pitchers who they hope is going to both be healthy and take a step forward. The last time we saw Michael Kopech on the field, he was like, finally starting to turn the corner the velocity was there he was throwing strikes and then he blew out and he had tommy john and he opted out of last season so i'm curious first how he's looked to you so far in spring and then what the team's plan is to sort of ease him back into innings is he going to be serving a long relief role to try to build back the arm like what's what's his 2021 supposed to look like
1: i mean it- gets a little cloudy at times but one thing that's clear is that he's starting the season in the major league bullpen it seems like it's going to bit more like they have michael kopech and garrett crochet right garrett crochet is pretty clearly like part of their late inning mix so it's going to be a lot of one inning outings a lot of like you know high leverage lefty matchups whereas kopech is going to be more along the lines of here is our starter that we're that we're moving Working in relief, but we're maybe moving him up and progressing. it would be a lot more like he pitches two innings, you know, every couple of days, and less, well, I wouldn't say there's going to be none, but less like, you know, he, you know, pitches back to back and maybe he just brought on for a particular hitter or two at the end of such and such inning. It's, it's a lot going to be a lot more, up. Uh, Measured short appearances, and they haven't closed the door to him kind of continuing to ramp up and maybe pitching three, four, or five, six, or really starting at some point. I think that's kind of just a product of it being a contending season that they can't really rule out what they'll need, and there's not like a hard shutdown point. But I, I would probably find that unlikely, uh, especially if they're basically ruling that his innings are at zero and they're trying to build them up gradually from there i don't think they'll be very quick to rush him over the you know 80 100 threshold uh over the course of the season so i don't really see how that plays into becoming a starter at some point but he seems to be the person that they're more leaning towards ramping up a little bit and seeing how it goes uh whereas crochet is just like you're a short reliever this year have at it and you know somehow next season you won't be a short reliever anymore (laughs) and we'll see how that kind of evolves
0: yeah i was gonna ask about that because i know you wrote about crochet and his development plan earlier this week so is the idea that it will be sort of a chris sale you know reliever to starter transition at some point do they know when that will be and you know how his skill set plays in one role versus the other
1: well right now and i think the way I phrased it to Rick Hahn when I was asking about it was the questions you have as this guy as a starter is that he, you know, he needs to improve his command. Uh, You know, his third pitch, his changeup was basically something he threw kind of good in one bullpen that they saw right before the draft or, you know, right before the baseball shut down and, and like, hey, there's potential there. He's got three pitches now. We can draft him as a starter. You know, it's very early stages. Whereas when he comes out of the pen, it's kind of like, a lot of hundreds, not really commanded very well, but you know that works. And I think he threw like eighty-five percent fastballs as a reliever. Like he he didn't seem anything he was doing relief was like, this guy's just a step or two away from starting. So he's he's definitely purely a reliever right now. But they're convinced that you know he'll do side sessions with Ethan Katz, and he'll he's he's focusing a lot right now on, on working on that third pitch and all his secondaries. You know he he'll do things. That will build him towards starting, you know, in the periphery, even if his outings don't really look like they're graduating toward that. And he'll have the benefit of spending a whole year in the clubhouse with, you know, Dallas Keuchel and Lance Lynn, and he'll pick up on things. But that any kind of real work in terms of extending him and longer outings and just transitioning to a starter routine, that's going to come next season. And you know, they're pretty firm it's going to come next season, but. It's, it's not happening now. My question is if crochet really develops into this, you know, monster relief weapon, if you just literally have Josh Hader on your hands, how do you say like, alright, you know, this is cool. We're going to go um, take away this extraordinarily useful thing and hope we can make it into this other thing, which it might not become good luck replacing Josh Hader that we've just taken away.
2: So before we talk about some of the guys who were sort of already on the roster last year, I want to talk about the the team's approach to their offseason. I know that you've, you've probably had to field this question both in your writing and on Twitter a lot, but I think that there was a sort of a general sense that this, this was the opportunity for the White Sox to really cement the division and move ahead. And they did make some additions both in free agency and on, on the trade side, but did their approach this this offseason, which I think we could call exciting but but modest, maybe compared to those expectations, sort of align with what you were expecting them to do? You know, bringing in someone like Hendricks and signing Adam Eaton and then trading for Lance Lynn. Did this strike you as them executing the plan they had all along, or did they really lose out on someone like Springer who they were actively pursuing?
1: Well, they pushed against the idea that they were ever really shopping top of the market in right field and certainly they they simultaneously are like we it's not like we have never shop at the top of the market hey we remember when we gave machado his big offer we really meant it but at the same time like it is clearly very rare that they seem to be in that position where they uh feel uh, capable or get the allotment from ownership to do that and this was not one of those cases and they were not trying to build expectations that they could shop on that level this this off season. You know, Liam Hendricks was as high as they were willing to go. And obviously shopping at the top of the relief market is the cheapest market to shop on the top of, so that reflects their budget restrictions. You know, Rick Hahn has gone on the record at this point several times saying like, yeah, the pandemic affected our offseason. Their their spending was restricted and they had to kind of piecemeal it around. So that not only affected right field, but even though they wound up getting a very good starting pitcher for their need for a top-end starter, they acquired a top-end starter in the most cash-conscious way they could. You know, they wind up only getting one year of a guy because they didn't want to like mortgage the farm to do it. And they wind up getting a guy who's on the last year of like a really team-friendly deal because otherwise they really the top of the top rotation arms were not accessible to them. Um, they were not you know serious competitors for Bauer in any like kind of respect. Even before you start dissecting what uh, whether that would be worth um, all the headaches. So yeah, they, I, I think fans have uh, a lot of legitimate reason to say you know you rebuilt you um you know tore down and you know took your payroll commitments long term down to like nothing with the expectation that when your contention years ran around that you could kind of really be competitive and unfettered in adding to the core. Instead, that's clearly not happened. You're you're looking for kind of uh you're you basically filled your biggest need in right field with, you know, essentially a rebound candidate and Adam Eaton. And you found like a cost conscious way to Address the top of rotation, and even you know, there are teams that solve their back end the rotation situations with guys with like eight million dollar offers, like Jose Quintana. They shopped at a lower tier on that as well. Like there was a lot of budget conscious shopping that they had to do, and I think the White Sox have pivot and say like, "Hey, the pandemic is the reason this is all affected, and you know, look at all of our pristine long term extensions. You know, it's not like we are doing nothing, but." I think it's clear that this was kind of this is the sort of season where you'd expect them to kind of be aggressive and you saw them have to be cost conscious in a way. And that that has festered a lot of uh, disappointment among the fan base
0: and hardly the most important spot on the roster. But maybe backup catcher is another example of that. You know, when you have Jonathan Lucroy and and look when you have Yasmani Grandal who's one of the best catchers in baseball then you hope that your backup catcher doesn't matter very much but it has been about 5 years since Jonathan Rucroy was good and he was very good when he was good but that was quite a while ago so is there someone who's coming up behind him that he's just kind of keeping that spot warm or does he have a hold on it
1: yeah i mean that that was part of it when the when they were searching for backup catchers, it was very clear that they were not going beyond a minor league deal to address it. And, you know, that was a little bit of a slight eyebrow raiser in the industry is that, you know, this is a team that's talking about the World Series, but they can't, you know, they can't have a major league contract that they hand out to, to solve this need. And, you know, obviously, you know, having a catcher uh, who's competent and, you uh, and, a you know, playoff uh, type situation is, is very important uh, i think we saw that with the nationals with their two-guy rotation that in 2019. yeah ideally you have 2019 yasmani grandal who plays 140 games but that you know right now is you're looking more at the realistic situation you'll have to deal with where yasmani grandal twisted his knee a couple weeks ago and hasn't played in cactus league yet and you've had nothing but the backups that's certainly a situation you could expect to crop up at some time in the regular season. Grandal, you know, tweaked his back at a point last season and, and missed a few games. So it, it's not like he has this absolutely perfect health of a over-30 catcher who never gets hurt or anything like that, because that doesn't really exist. Luke Roy, you, you asked if somebody's coming behind him. The White Sox have three catchers on their 40-man roster in addition to Grandal. Uh, Zach Collins, Yermeen Mercedes, and Sebi Zavala. But the fact that they went out and... Added Lucroy kind of speaks to the fact that they don't have the catching depth or confidence in the catching depth that, that those numbers would suggest. I think if you really thought Zach Collins, the guy you picked 10th overall five years ago, was ready to catch in the major leagues, you wouldn't, or were totally certain about it, you wouldn't make this sort of addition. If you really thought that your mean Mercedes was a very reliable catcher, given his AAA numbers offensively, you, you probably wouldn't be hunting around for depth. So... Yeah, I, I think it is probably Luke Roy's uh, locked up, especially with their goals this season. You, it makes them less inclined to kind of roll the punches of a of an unproven defensive catcher. And, and it kind of raises a larger question of what they're going to do with this crop of guys. They've got, you know, a lot of these, you know, upper 20s catchers who have done decently at AAA, but have some sort of issues with terms of, um, you know, defense or how much they're. Offensive tools really play at the major league level that now that they're in contention, they're never going to reach this point where it's really comfortable to just throw these guys into the fire when you have these long term questions on them. So it, it really raises the question of what they're going to do with them long term, uh, other than have them all uh, watch Jonathan Recroy, you know, handle handle pitchers a little bit better than them.
2: I think the sense coming into 2020 was that Tim Anderson would have to regress somewhat in terms of his offensive production. He had a 399 BABIP in 2019, and I think there was just a general thought that this was not sustainable, and his BABIP did regress a little bit in 2020, but he managed to have a better year at the place, at least by WRC+. So I don't want to make too much of 221 plate appearances in 2020 as a continuation of the same sort of performance he had in 2019, but it seems like there is uh some sustainability here so what are your expectations for anderson coming into a, a a new full season
1: i mean you obviously expect to it to fall down a little bit because right now it's insane looking and like how how would somebody do this consistently over a prolonged stretch of time and you know i i thought a big fallback was coming last year and he kind of ended the 2020 season on a slump but he also like made a like slight mechanical adjustment in, like a, a day off and then was extremely dominant in the playoffs for whatever you know even smaller ridiculous sample that was. I don't watch Tim Anderson and think like this is a 280 hitter who uh you know is just getting really lucky for a year and a half. No. <laughs> um he, he's obviously got like a ton of bat speed, he's got a really stable leg base. He he doesn't like come out of his shoes like pretty much ever on a swing. He looks really good. Uh I I know his indicators are extremely weird and I wouldn't want to see what, like, 33 or, or above, or I think his, like, contract extension runs out when he's, like, 31. I, I'm not excited about what that starts to look at when he physically slows down. But right now, he's got this approach of a guy who's like, I have elite hand speed and I'm going to use it. And it seems like it works for him. I don't know if it will necessarily work at a 330 with power level um, with him in perpetuity, especially... Given you, you look at like his exit velocities and they're somewhat pedestrian, and his you know contact and strikeout rates are don't really suggest a guy who's just an elite hit tool, but I don't feel like it's going to collapse. And you, you don't really get the vibe of people, opponents or coaches talking about him like, oh, this guy just has you know a great run run of BABIP and there's there's no real like talent there, or he's not really doesn't really have the tool set to, to to do this. It's very weird. I I don't know if like. It had, He's almost a guy that I wonder, like, will there be five years from now when we have more advancements about how to analyze batted ball data or what goes into a high babip that might tell us a bit more about what he's doing and why it's effective? But I have a little bit of faith in it. I don't think he's going to collapse to being like. I don't believe in his Picoda projection, for example. I don't think he's just going to collapse to the mean. Um, there's something that he's been doing over his last uh, two seasons in terms of his ability to really hits all fields that i i think is legitimate even if i don't know why yet
0: well if we can switch from anderson to an even more aggressive hitter i want to ask about Luis robert who entered 2020 as one of the most hype prospects in baseball and backed up a lot of that hype and finished second in the rookie of the year race won a gold glove and showed a lot of promise offensively but also kind of cratered at the end. And as hot as he was in August, he was equally cold in September. And there were concerns about his lack of selectivity and strikeout rate and whether that is sustainable, whether he can really get to his power and uh, his offensive potential while swinging and missing as much as he does or just plain swinging as much as he does. So clearly with his speed and defense and base running and everything he does, he doesn't have to be an offensive star to be a star overall or to be a valuable player. But if he could be, if he could hit like he did in the first half of last season, if we're even calling that a half of a season, then he would be an absolute superstar and and a face of the franchise type.
1: Obviously just looking at swing and miss rates, uh, his zone chase rates, um, pretty much anything he does offensively is like extremely nuts. And, um, possibly the most insane approach in terms of just like breaking it down statistically I've ever seen. Like that dude just takes huge cuts and whiffs an absolute ton. And I think looking at anything else uh, or anyone else, you'd, you'd seem like this is disastrous if you didn't see like a, a lot of concrete reasons for why he'd be on an upward trend. I would say due to his professional experience where I don't feel like you really face people who are on the same talent level as him for so long, he is really kind of making a lot of those adjustments for the first time, uh, in terms of really refining himself, because he hadn't needed to. Like I think, you know, triple A was probably the first time uh that his plate discipline was really being abused in any way, but it was still twenty nineteen with the rabbit ball and Triple A, so he slugged over six hundred while doing it. So there wasn't really like a concrete reason for him to start really installing this stuff until he kinda hit it in the face last season and you know he came up in the majors and he was just getting spammed with breaking balls non-stop and really didn't do that bad in terms of adjusting to it it was really when the way he described it is that once the approach kind of reflipped on him and he started getting attacked with fastballs in response to the success he was having that he got really in between and just kind of took a month to kind of really figure it out the last like week of the regular season and certainly in the playoffs looked like Luis Robert again. So from that standpoint, it would seem like he would continue on this track of slowly acclimating and slowly reining in the sort of stuff that he's doing to make you think that this offensive ceiling that was reflected in his minor league numbers is, is, is he's still moving toward. I think there's obviously he's probably always going to be a guy who has these just insane hot streaks where he looks like the best player in the world and where he's kind of just chasing and and swinging and missing a ton. But I I think. You saw him with just probably the worst approach he'll have at any point in his career. And, you know, at the earliest stage of development and going through uh, a slump that he couldn't fix for like the longest time that he's really dealt with as a professional. And it was like a league average hitter. And I want to say that's the floor, but that does kind of reflect the fact that like his tools are such that if he gets rolling in any meaningful, meaningful way, he can make up a lot of ground. So I would, I don't think he's like, going to track down Eloy Jimenez in that level of offensive potential, but I'd be really high on it because, um, you know, he he's done a lot given how raw he is. And there's every reason to think that he's kind of just kind of making these changes in this game for the first time. And, you know, we should probably give him a little bit of runway to see what that produces.
0: The White Sox have been pretty aggressive when it comes to signing their players to extensions, Robert, of course, Jimenez, moncada anderson is there anyone else who might be in line for one that they might be thinking about or talking to now giolito or nick madrigal or anyone else
1: giolito is someone they've absolutely identified as an extension candidate you know obviously once he did what he did in 2019 that was on their agenda so there's definitely been dialogue there i think probably like was a a podcast with, uh, you know, Kevin Goldstein, like, um, was it nine years ago at this point that he did with Giolito's dad, where they talked about his experience in the draft and, you know, kind of getting teams that wanted to negotiate against, you know, his injury and tweak his value based on that and how he had to have a really strong concept of what he was going to do and what he wanted to demand. And, you know, the famous story, I think, is he agreed to, like, terms of the Nationals Less than a minute uh, before the the deadline, so this is all a long story to say. Gley is kind of a tough cookie, and he knows what he's doing, and he's been professional for almost a decade now. And I just, if you look at those contracts, you know the Luis Robert deal, the certainly the On Mancata deal, you know it's a lot of the team hunting long term discounts uh, in exchange for you know this big guarantee of life changing money, but you know really trying to lock down really affordable rates for, you know, what should be high end players down the road. And I think that Giolito is, is, is probably someone who'd be a, a harder person to flip on that down the road. But, you know, also, I don't think it's going to happen at this point. I wouldn't say that there's like been some offer uh, that he he's rejected, but I think that they've been feeling each other out. And, you know, it, it, at this point it, it It doesn't seem like it's trending towards something that's going to work out uh, long term. And it's certainly a player who um, is not uncomfortable with the idea of, of going year to year. That aside, like, you know, the normal thing they've faced the last few years of, you know, you have Andrew Vaughn, who basically is their top prospect, who is ascending to a role that's been carved out for him. Are they going to acknowledge that and just, you know, give him the spot opening day since it is his spot, or are they going to send him back down? You know, the last couple of guys that that's been the case with, Luis Robert, Eloy, Menes, it took a pre-spring uh, training contract extension to secure to do that. I would think players who come through the domestic draft seem to be a little bit less likely to do that. And, you know, Vaughn got, you know, the third overall pick bonus money. So it, it's not like he's trying to figure out how to keep the lights on if there's not some big extension uh, heading his way. But it it. it does stand a reason those are rebuilding seasons. You know, what does it matter if the 2019 White Sox have LOA Metas in, in left field opening day or not? Whereas is it harder for them to justify not having your DH that you know is going to be your DH for the first couple weeks of the season just because you're doing something for, you know, 2027 in mind? So that's probably the situation that I would, would eye more than Madrigal or um, expecting something to, to change with the Giolito situation.
2: I wanted to ask about Moncada because he obviously, I mean, he had just a rough 2020 as a person. I know that his bout with COVID was pretty gnarly uh, in terms of the lingering effects that he felt in his body and his energy level. He also was very, he was pretty different at the plate. He had this 2019 where he was notably more aggressive than he had been. And then 2020, he was more passive. So I I wonder what you make of his year and kind of what your expectations are for him in 2021. He said that he's feeling better, finally feeling better in his body. But do you expect that we might see a return to the more aggressive version of him at the plate?
1: Yeah, he said as much. I think in 20 post 2019, it was all about he can get even better. He's going to find this happy medium in his approach. He's going to, you know, get some of those walks back while still being this guy who, uh, you know, hits for high average in power. But all the talk this year is just like, let me get back to my 2019 approach. Let me get back to what I was doing in 2019. Let me start stealing bases again. Let me start using my um, athleticism a bit more. So he's another guy who's um, in that Tim Anderson reign of like, you look at his bad hip of like, this is absolutely ridiculous. But then you watch him on a daily basis and like, this guy is very physically talented. I don't want to just dismiss everything he's doing out of hand. And, you know, unlike Anderson, you know, his... Huge 2019 did come along with, like, really elite exit velocity uh, numbers to suggest that, you know, he should get a higher BABIP uh, than most, but not, you know, 400. So, I was definitely of the mindset of, you know, even though he said that he's feeling great, I'd really like to see it him... um, play over a long season before I say like this guy is absolutely hundred percent better. Cause we really have absolutely no precedent of how long long-term effects of COVID linger, right? Watch him in spring. He does look like the old guy he does. He's, he's not pulling up, uh, he's winded like after, uh, you know, sprinting out a double second. He doesn't seem like he's, um, constantly managing his energy. He does look like he's just kind of letting loose. And that's very encouraging. Uh, I would say that before this, before any of that, you know, Yoan Mankato was a guy who tended to accumulate aches and pains. Like the big thing before 2020 was that he had had a hamstring strain at some point every season before that, and he was trying to prepare himself in some way where that wouldn't happen again. He he tends to come up with with those muscle strain issues that pop up every now and then. That you know both you know will take him out for a week or two, but also maybe slow him down surrounding that. So there's been no signs of uh, anything like that this spring, but. That's been an issue with him over the past couple of years. I don't know if that necessarily goes away. He's definitely trying to be back to the 2019 guy.
0: This lineup is already filled with 20-something hitters. I'm excited to see and really like watching, and we've talked about most of them. But another you just mentioned, Andrew Vaughn, the team's top prospect. You just wrote about him. He is on the doorstep, as the headline of your piece said What's the ETA, where might he fit on this 2021 team, and what are the White Sox hoping he'll turn into long-term?
1: So, yes, calling back to the offseason and, like, kind of fan dissatisfaction with it, you know, DH was obviously a need. Edwin Encarnacion played very poorly, and they uh, wisely did not pick up his option. In his stead, they did nothing. So that leaves it entirely, basically, on the idea they you know, they've said since the end of last season that Vaughn was their guy. Um, that he was every bit in line with when they didn't do anything to address second base because Nick Magigal was going to take over the position or when they didn't do center field because Luis Robert was going to take over the position, you know, and on down the line. Like they have other guys in camp who give him token competition in terms of, you know, Zach Collins or Gavin Sheets. But, you know, all of those are much bigger leaps of faith than just simply handling the position to Vaughn. And that's largely what they, You know, intend to do. I would say, yeah. The there's the constant uncertainty about opening day, but for all intents and purposes, the job is his, and there's not really all the backup plans to him are worse. There's not like some veteran who could get hot and assume the role in camp. There's there's, it's literally just Vaughn competing against you know lesser prospects. So I I think you expect basically 600 plate appearances of Vaughn, and I don't really know what that would look like because there's not a lot of um elite prospects who haven't played above high A that you can draw from expectations for unless you think uh, Andrew Vaughn is Juan Soto, which um, I don't, at least not until it provided further evidence. But there, there's definitely a lot of plate discipline and there's a lot of assurity to his approach that makes you think that even if he is struggling to adjust, that it will look a lot more like a guy who has a on-base percentage that's above water, even if he's not getting into his power or if he's still figuring things out. You know, for the first couple months of the season, I watched Eloy Jimenez just absolutely turn um, opposing pitching into pulp at three different levels um, in person, and then watched him struggle for basically three months as a rookie. So there's really no one you, you could show me in the minor leagues that I would say, like, this guy's going to hit right away. Um, and I don't think I'd grant Vaughn any extra allowance there since he hasn't necessarily, he, he, he looked a little like uh worn out from the college season, the one pro season we've seen him with. So I I can't say I've really seen him just, uh, you know, dominate, but uh, if there's a hitting prospect that you would choose to, to kind of make this jump with, you know, he, he seems as qualified as any. It's just, it's, it's going to be hard for anybody.
0: All right. Last question before we ask you for a win total prediction. And this question is about two players. So Dan Symborski at Fangrass recently published his 2021 bust candidates and breakout candidates based on his projections, but also his own analysis and intuition. And the White Sox had one player on each list. So on the bust candidates list was Jose Abreu. And to be clear, before anyone gets mad, he's not saying Abreu is bad or going to be terrible or something. It's just that he's coming off a somewhat surprising MVP season. And his mean projection, according to Zips, is lower than his full season, you know, in 60 games production was last year. So there's some regression projected there. And then on the breakout candidates list, Dylan Cease appears, and Dan writes that Cease was the pitcher with the second largest underperformance based on velocity, movement, and plate discipline stats in 2020, which is good, I guess, because he didn't have a very good FIP. so maybe White Sox fans will be happy to hear that, so it seems like Cease... Being a breakout guy is pretty important given the instability, uncertainty at the back of the White Sox rotation. You know, with Lynn and Gilito and Keiko, things are pretty solid or at least predictable up top, but the back less so. So what do you think of the bust and breakout predictions for Abreu and Cease, respectively?
1: I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting Abreu to do what he did last year. He was on a pretty steady downward trend a couple of years before that and he just like a lot of us uh tends to just get older every year so Mm i i didn't really expect that to happen and there wasn't really like a big reason to expect it to happen like abreu got himself in pretty good shape pre-2017 so even kind of a you know revamp program uh you know and fitness level type of a you know reason for a resurgence I, i felt like that. That narrative had already kind of played itself out with the big twenty seventeen he had, and he was still kind of on the slowdown. So, yeah, I could certainly get that argument. The counter I'd be like would be, you know, he just proved us all wrong last year. Maybe we shouldn't be as dismissive of his ability to make adjustments and um, his ability to, uh, you know, kind of sustain himself. Uh, He's definitely put a lot of work into his conditioning since uh, he turned thirty. But this time last year, I I was probably going to argue like they really should be doing something to take the burden off him facing a lot of tough righties. Uh, and then he, he did what he did. I, I don't know how he did it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get the idea that he yeah. it should come down. I would say, if anything, the White Sox lineup where it behooves them and you know the whole thing with bringing up Vaughn is that there, you need to be trying to prepare for the idea that Abreu is going to start coming down. So, yeah, that, that seems like a reasonable call, even though, uh, the road down from what it was like a 165 WRC plus is long, and if he <laughs> nearly takes his time coming down from it, he'll he'll be plenty of an asset for the White Sox over the last two years of his deal. Mm-hmm. Cease, yeah, Cease throws extremely hard and has uh, wipeout breaking stuff, so he he should be good. I get that argument. I've also seen him not be good for two years now, and. He's kind of been battling this war to really get the carry and ride on his fastball, and you know the tunneling that he would have off his two breaking pitches for the past two years with, with not much success. He obviously has a new pitching coach now. He's doing a lot of um, core velocity belt work uh, that's kind of following in line with the. It was literally Ethan Katz and Lucas Giolito who did this work with this device to kind of get him back to you know the four seam ride and, and pitching off of it that he had, and they literally hired the guy that worked with Giolito to come and work with the rest of their staff. So it, it, it definitely could uh, snap together with him, you know. And it's not like we've never seen him like kind of unlock everything because the 2018 guy, a suspect as a command, might have been in the minors. Um, his his pitches and the action that he had is something that he hasn't really had at the major league level the last two years. It's just you know a constant wave of flying open and y- yanking everything glove side and adding cut to his fastball that takes away from really the effectiveness of velocity. And so I think there's upside with Cease just if you just get his stuff working the way it's supposed to. I, I don't think that makes him like a guy who's going to have like necessarily below 8 or 9% walk rate. And I think that still probably hinders am absolutely touching like the elite ceiling that you talk about but if we actually just see the cease who gets the the carry on his fastball that he had in 2018 and can pitch off of it that's good that's going to be a significant upgrade even if you're just talking about like securing the back in the rotation so i probably wouldn't use such extreme terms of like breakout implies that cease <laughs> is going to be like an all-star i would say mm-hmm. like but then no one reading my article if i you know, <laughs> typed it as Mild improvement and mild decline, uh, candidates uh, right. for for twenty twenty one. So, in spirit, agree with both. Where I I would probably caution, like you know, hopefully it's not you know extreme, but you know, baseball has extreme stories all the time. I don't, I don't know. Some people have said in the past you can't predict baseball, and you know, more and more, I think it might be true.
0: <laughs> which is a great segue into my last question, which is asking you to predict baseball. <laughs> I was just thinking. that.
1: <laughs> so, how many games will the White Sox win
0: in twenty twenty
1: one? I was bullish generally and especially since i don't really like any of the teams other than the twins and the Yale central i could do a, an hour about why i think the whole royals offseason was just moving around deck chairs that cleveland off- offense last year was abominable and their pitching staff propped them up and and weakening weakening that it makes me think that they're they're uh doomed to kind of fall off so I think the White Sox have a lot of accessible wins in the Yale Central to uh, give me optimism for a well above 500 team. But I would say, I know it doesn't matter, but i have come out here to Arizona and watched them lose seemingly every day in spring. I've decided as a result to adjust my win total from 90 and 72 to 89 and 73, just as punishment because (laughs) actions have consequences and they need to be held accountable.
0: (laughs) Huge reaction, overreaction to spring training struggles. Yes. You've got them one win. Yeah. (laughs) It's based
1: on no tangible information. Spring training is meaningless, but I'm upset. And that's, this is what I'm doing.
0: Okay. All right. Well, it should be a good season. It should be an entertaining season. And thanks to Jason Benetti and Steve Stone and Len Casper and Darren Jackson, it should be a well-broadcasted season, whatever happens. And you can follow it along with James on Twitter at JRFegan. And of course, by reading his excellent writing at The Athletic. Thank you very much, James.
1: Thanks for having me. Sorry for my hotel internet. (laughs)
0: <laughs> You're not the only one So don't feel bad about it We will take a quick break now And we'll be right back with Nick Pecora To talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks They
1: say the definition of madness Is doing the same thing And expecting a different result That's right Do I
0: We are back and ready to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks with our pal Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports, who has joined us many a time before.
3: Hello, Nick. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you
0: guys for having me back. Happy to have you back. So we did the Giants preview earlier this week, and there are some similarities here, not only in that these teams are in the same division and face some of the same challenges, but maybe somewhat similar off seasons too. Not a ton of new names and faces in prominent positions for the Diamondbacks. And so I'm going to kick this off just by reading something that Joe Sheehan wrote in his newsletter a few weeks ago. The Giants could maybe justify their quiet winter by pointing out that they nearly made the playoffs and therefore bring back all of an offense that was shockingly good. The Diamondbacks can't make that case. They finished 25-35, the second-worst record among NL teams. They didn't hit well or pitch well. They were 25th among all teams in WRC+, 27th in fit-minus. As with the Giants, though, you have 11 of the top 12 hitters by plate appearances returning and 87% of the team's plate appearances from 2020 in all. The one addition is 35-year-old Astro Cabrera, who will serve as a backup infielder who can't play shortstop, although he is still a credible bat off the bench. The other way to look at this roster, though, is to skip over 2020 and think of it as running back a 2019 team at 185 games and chased a wildcard slot into September. That team included the same core as last year, but it featured an MVP caliber performance by Cattell Marte, as well as big first full seasons by Carson Kelly and Christian Walker. And he goes on from there. But Mm -hmm. which are the Diamondbacks regarding this as? I would assume, since they did largely stand pat, that they are hoping that it's more the 2019 team than the 2020 team in terms of results and performance. So is that... The plan and is that a realistic plan
3: yeah that that is basically the way that they've been spinning it. I guess I would say first of all, like th- there is this talk of like you know getting back to what we were in twenty nineteen it's like okay, that was a team that was so mediocre at the trade deadline that they felt like they needed to trade Zach granke and they didn't totally punt, but like I, th- I just think it's an eighty five win club that we need to keep in mind was like nothing special to begin with, but That said, yeah, I mean, they look at everything that happened last year kind of through the pandemic lens, right? Like just a bunch of veteran players that were used to doing things a certain way, um, used to kind of, you know, calibrating themselves mentally for a long season, used to preparing for a year with a typical spring and all that, and had all that. You know, had the, the rug pulled out from under them, right? So I, I think that they're hoping that a return to, you know, in Madison Bumgarner's case, for example, on normal spring training and, and being able to build up the way that he used to in the case of all the position players, you know, understanding that if you have a bad couple of weeks, it's not a quarter of your season. You still have, you know, a whole lot left that, you know, kind of getting back to all of that normalcy will allow guys to kind of relax and be themselves and perform the way that they have in the past.
2: So one of those guys who I'm sure they're hoping will perform like he did in the past is Catel Marte, as Ben mentioned. His 2019 was superlative and his 2020 less so. He's interesting because when you look at his, some of his sort of surface stat caps metrics, it doesn't look all that different in 2020 as it did in 2019, but there was a, a noticeable dip in sort of his power production and it looks like he was clustering his hardest hit balls at a more optimal launch angle in 2019 than in 2020. So that's a, a nerdy way of me asking: What are your expectations for him in twenty twenty one? Was this really just you know sixty games with weird prep and a couple of bad runs, or is there some cause for concern potentially around what his power output might look like this year?
3: I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I I think it's an interesting question. Um, I kind of felt like coming out of twenty nineteen, there was just a lot of a lot of expectation um, put on on him and a lot of like planning it seemed like going into 2020 and 2021 planning around like Cattell now being a star and it it was a really impressive season but it really was just kind of the one season so I've I've kind of been you know keeping a little bit of a I don't know I guess just being a little bit skeptical a little bit wait and see on it yeah the numbers right-handed were really really good last year still Um, the numbers left-handed not so much Uh, he did have a uh, an injury that you know, maybe was nagging on him for longer than he let on that could have played into it But you know when we talked to him at multiple points during the season and this is always through an interpreter and you know on zoom calls so it was even Harder to get a sense for what was going on and and in normal season Cattell does speak enough English that, that you can have a conversation with him I don't think he felt comfortable doing that in the in the zoom environment but whenever we were talking to him last year it always felt like like without us mentioning it he would say something about the length of the season so it seemed pretty clear to me that that was a thing that was on his mind and that was like playing into his performance so i i guess like um you you go out and you watch him take batting practice too it's it's still just as explosive and and powerful as it ever was so i'm probably more willing to to chalk it up as just a uh, you know just a fluke type of season and um and kind of go into 2021 with the same questions i had coming off of 2019 just like is this for real not necessarily because he was you know so much so much more down to earth last year but just because i still don't feel like he's really proven it long term
0: you mentioned bum and he had a, a good first start of his spring seemed like his velocity bounced back a bit so what are the expectations for him in terms of stuff and health and performance
3: yeah, I mean it can't it can't be that bad again, right? I mean it just has to get better, you have to assume. And look, the last couple of starts of the season do allow you a little bit more optimism that like okay, like it it's it's still in there. He can still be a a solid big league starter. Like I don't know if the days of top of the rotation are behind him. I would probably assume that he's not going to be able to get back to quite those levels again, you know, unless the stuff kind of ticks up even further. But it is back a little bit, like you said. Um, I, I I think that you know there's all there's also that like what was the the Bill James what's it called the transition tax thing that that he's talked about before. You know the first year of a guy changing teams can sometimes be tough, and I I, I do feel like you can see an example of of that uh, with the way that they kind of were feeling their way through how to present information to him last year, and it really didn't happen until very late in the season where. It seemed like my reading of the situation was that Bumgarner came to them and said, look, I don't need all this stuff. You're overloading me. Like, Let's just keep it simple. And they said, okay. And I I think that it it allowed him to, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of reading into it. Like, He he hasn't really gone into a lot of detail on this, but it seems like it just kind of allowed him to relax and just kind of do his thing and, and attack without thinking too much about stuff. Yeah, I mean, I like I mentioned earlier, the fact was he, he went home and didn't throw as much during quarantine as, you know, looking back, he he wishes that he had. You know, he has a little trouble, like, you know, second guessing himself because he didn't know when it was going to start. He didn't know, like, you know, how, how long we were going to be down. And... And, uh, you know, he, he does say, though, that he wished, he wished he had done a little bit more of that in retrospect. So, uh, you know, he, he seems like the guy now that he was in spring of last year, which was, you know, more like the Bumgarner of old than, uh, than he was the, the Bumgarner that showed up in July and, and, you know, took a while to get going. So, yeah, there's some reason for optimism. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening.
2: One guy who did not have a disappointing year on the mound is Zach Gallen, and I think, you know, I'm curious what you're sort of expecting out of him performance-wise, but I also am curious what the team's approach is going to be for him in terms of ramping up his innings. He threw 80 innings in 2019, the year that he was traded to the Diamondbacks, and then 72 last year, which, you know, is a reasonable complement of starters' innings in the the shortened season, but what is their approach going to be to sort of ramping him up into, into more innings this year?
3: Yeah, my expectations are pretty high for him. I mean, I I do think that the the success that he has had pitching with runners on base is probably hard to sustain. But that said, he has at times like four really good pitches and commands them all really well and is comfortable throwing them in just about any count and doesn't make very many mistakes over the plate. He's really, really good. So I, I think he is, is probably... Uh, Prime to have another really good year. Um, as for the innings, I, I think I think maybe you looked at that a little wrong because he he threw a lot of innings with the Marlins uh, in the big leagues and in AAA. I think he got up to something like 175 or 180 in 2019. I don't know though what they're going to do uh, in terms of of how they're going to handle him because it's just they're they're not really letting us in too, too much on their thinking on that. Um, essentially, they're just saying that. They're going to kind of monitor it and see how it goes. I, I think that if Zach Allen is rolling um, and this team is in a pennant race, I I don't think they're going to stop him uh, just because, you know, he only threw however many innings last year. I, I think they're going to let him keep going as long as the, you know, velocity is good, the, you know, he's, he's feeling good between starts. His, you know, underlying numbers, the spin rates or whatever it might be, arming or release points, whatever it might be. Um, you know aren't concerning i think they're going to let him go um so i i don't know uh we'll we'll just have to see the the you know how it all plays out i i think that they're in the you know they're obviously in the same situation as everybody else there's just a lot of uncertainty on on that topic
0: what about the rest of the rotation you've got Luke Weaver who is very much in the hope it's more like 2019 than 2020 camp and then you have a, a couple of other guys in Merrill Kelly and Caleb Smith who had at least good surface stats in 2020, although Smith had a quite high FIP and, and other peripherals that he sort of beat. But again, that's you know, five games, four starts, so that doesn't mean very much. So what does the rest of the rotation look like behind those top two that we talked about?
3: yeah, a lot of questions, right? Um, Merrill Kelly is coming off of the surgery, but looks great so far in spring training, so that's encouraging. I think that uh you know he did he did throw very well briefly last season, and there was some hope that he's kind of starting to settle down and get comfortable and and become himself or you know the guy that he that he thinks that he can be and the guy that he thinks that he was uh, for a while in Korea before he came back over. you know Weaver is there's a lot of questions there. Um, you know, he he kinda of basically turned into a, a two pitch guy last season. His his uh breaking balls were just really unreliable and he and he wound up just kind of being a fastball changeup guy. He needs to get that secondary stuff back and he needs to get rolling and pitch with confidence. And then yeah, I mean, Caleb Smith, I don't I don't know a, an awful lot about him yet. I don't feel super comfortable breaking him down. He he seems like a guy that that pitches a lot like Robbie Ray, except with with a few less miles per hour, which is to say a lot of deep counts and a lot of just kind of a lot of high pitch count type of outings where the where he doesn't end up getting deep into games. That that's what it it has struck me as so far. Beyond that, yeah, I mean they've got a lot of guys that like that could end up working their way into the mix probably the first and foremost is Corbin Martin who was one of the key pieces in the Granky trade and he missed all of last season as he was coming back from Tommy John and then right when he was nearing a return I think he had an oblique injury but like beyond that it's like Taylor Clark Alex Young John Duplantier there's probably guys I'm forgetting Riley Smith yeah th- there's there's a lot of like that kind of options you know depth guys that have that have got to the big leagues already pitched to some degree of success you know there's some of them are going to end up in the bullpen probably but yeah we'll, we'll we'll have to see how they handle it i don't feel quite as confident i don't think about the rotation as they seem to be talking about it as i've i've heard some people refer to it as the strength of the team i'm kind of unsure we'll we'll have to see if if look i mean all a lot of these guys i guess all of them you could say have had, you know, seasons where they've been really good. Um I'm just not sure that you can really project that at this point for them.
2: I want to ask about some of the guys who aren't going to be at Chase Field this year, but hopefully will headline the next good Diamondbacks team. What was the team's approach to player development in the pandemic-shortened season? They obviously had a bunch of their top prospects at the alt site, and those guys got action uh, in fall instructs as well. But sort of the the real strength of this team long-term is going to to be in the farm system, especially the guys acquired in that um, great 2019 draft. So What what approach did they take for the guys who weren't able to be on the complex this year and might have been doing their dev from home?
3: Yeah, I mean they did the best they could. A lot of a lot of like you know having hitters or pitchers record themselves, you know, taking BP or throwing bullpens and and sending that into coaches and and breaking it down like that. You know, they had a lot of those guys entering in an app. Um, like when they were throwing, how much they were throwing, um, just trying to track progress uh, as best they could, you know, having them follow workout plans, things like that. You know, it seemed like a lot of those guys that showed up at Instructional League did develop. It seemed like just from from talking to, to player development people, you know, they were encouraged by the, you know, whether it was gains in velocity, development of secondary pitches, whatever it might be, to make them feel like, there was some progress made, but, you know, it was in short bursts, you know, guys weren't throwing more than two or three innings at a time. You know, being able to hold uh velocity gains over the course of a long season and, you know, being able to stay healthy over the course of a long season are still, you know, big hurdles for the for the pitchers. And then, you know, from the the position player standpoint, you know, I, I think a lot of those guys like I I guess I guess it's just hard to be too bullish on on how well they did no matter what they did last year when a guy like christian robinson just just needs at bats you know he right. just needs experience uh, look like guys like corbin carroll alec thomas you know paven smith some of those guys went to the alt site did really well but again like you're facing the same pitchers like over and over and over you kind of ought to do well right i don't know it, i i think they did the best they could i and I, and like i said i, I think they were encouraged. I think
0: we asked you about Tim LeCastro on last year's preview, just as sort of a, an under the radar curiosity. And he's someone who is extremely fast, always shows up right around the top of the StatCast Sprint Speed leaderboard, and famously has not been caught stealing yet and has 26 steals against no caught stealings. But it seemed like maybe there was a path to more playing time or perhaps even a starting role this year because of how well he hit in a small sample last season, but that was somewhat surprising given his below average bat in the couple of seasons prior to that, also in fairly small samples. I know he tested positive for COVID almost 10 days ago now, so I don't know how that sets him back, but is there a possibility that he might be getting more playing time or a more regular role in the Diamondbacks outfield this year?
3: Uh, Yeah. I think it's possible. I think he's going to have to earn it. And yeah, he's, he's supposed to be back from from uh, his COVID absence very soon. It was bad timing because it happened right when Cole Calhoun got injured. And now he's not expected to be out for very long, uh, probably a couple of weeks or so into the season. But still, it's an opportunity that, that Lacastro could have seized upon. But by being out, uh, he kind of made it a little bit harder for himself. There's still a lot of time left in camp. But yeah, I, I think even, even when Calhoun comes back, They've, they've kind of left open the possibility that he could claim a lot of playing time in center field and Cattell Marte's versatility, you know, he could bounce back to second base in that instance. If you're, if you're looking at who he is kind of competing with for at-bats, Josh Rojas is probably the guy who is, who is going to be the hardest for him to, to keep down because these first couple of weeks of spring training, Rojas has looked terrific, and he would probably be the option at second base and move Cattell out to center field. It's, you know, it's early. A lot can change. But uh, you're right, LeCastro, LeCastro didn't have that great of a season last year other than the last, like, week of, of the season when he had a, f- a few multi-hit games to kind of really drive those numbers up. And like you said, it was a very small sample size. But it does sound like the Diamondbacks are kind of intrigued by his skill set. But like I said, he's he's going to have to kind of earn his way into that. There's a whole group of guys that they that they have acquired over the last few years that they haven't really given opportunities to that they like i'm probably going to forget some of them but rojas LaCastro, josh van meter wyatt matheson andrew young but and then and then the the guys like paven smith and dalton varsho who are prospects and big league ready they have a lot of guys that they that they've kind of talked about like look we need to give opportunities to the, to these guys at the big league level find out what we've got and see if they can be you know, whether it's regulars or, or part time guys, LaCastro's right in that mix.
2: I remain very fascinated by Dalton Varsho just because it is, I think, an increasing rarity to have a guy who might situationally catch in the big leagues. I know that he, I think, only got like eight games at catcher last year, but I'm curious what you expect his role to be with the team going forward. I know that, you know, they have Carson Kelly, they have Stephen Vogt on the depth chart, so it's not as if they necessarily are in the hunt for a backup there. But what is what are your expectations of him from a role perspective going forward?
3: Yeah, I think it's a great question. They want him to, you know, remain involved in catching. I think that they want him to catch regularly. Um if he isn't going to be a starting outfielder or or whatever on the on the big league club, a guy that plays regularly at the big league level, then they want him, I think, in the minors catching all the time. He's looked like a like a above average outfielder and and he runs so well. He's such an interesting skill set. But this spring it's kind of started to concern me because I don't know how many games he's played behind the plate at this point, maybe a half dozen. But there have already been four or five instances where I don't know, a, a pitch in the dirt that he, you know, should have caught, wasn't able to, a team executing a double steal against him, a catcher's interference call, you know, just little things like that where like he's he's giving away 90 feet. And I've never seen I guess I haven't seen an awful lot of him on a regular basis in the past, but the people that I've talked to, the the scouting community and the the player development side, people are really confident that this guy can catch at the big league level. So I'm I'm wondering if while it's very easy for him seemingly to go out to the outfield and look very good, is that a detriment to his catching? I kind of wonder if they're going to have to make a decision on that, at least, you know, until he really you know fully develops behind the plate kind of make a call and be like look we we need you to focus on this this is this is the most important part of your game for now we we need you to to hone in and and get better behind the plate i guess the other side though is that he's also looked very good uh, at the plate taken really good at bats and his numbers weren't great at the big league level last year he did finish a lot better than he started it was just a rough start and it's possible that that bat just kind of forces a decision and forces its way to the big league level before it's he's ready behind the plate. In the in that event, I guess all bets are off. But my, my guess is that his future is, at least the near future, is going to be primarily focused on catching. And then, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I think, like, you know, assuming he establishes himself at the major league level and assuming that Carson <laughs> Kelly is still in the organization, I think he could be one of those one of those rare guys that's like bouncing from, you know, position to position and getting his way in the lineup all the time. And that's, those are fun guys to watch, especially, man, especially just the way he runs the bases. He had a triple into the right center field gap in Scottsdale the other day. And uh, just, I mean, it's, it's funny to watch. It's just amazing to watch a catcher run the way that he runs.
0: I guess one area of the roster that has a little bit of a different look, I don't know if it's a better look or not, is the bullpen where Archie Bradley is no more. And there are some new veterans who are part of this mix now, Soria, Clipper, Davinsky, Ryan Buckter, etc., and then also some holdovers. So how do they see the late-inning situation shaping up, and is there anyone who is returning to this bullpen that they think might have late-inning potential who could possibly step up?
3: yeah i guess soria is probably the guy that is the kind of the the leader in the clubhouse to be the the closer if you had to bet on it clippard would be the you know kind of just the 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 versatile you know pitches all the time can handle any role type of guy i think as far as guys that could step up and, and kind of emerge like a guy that they talk about a lot is taylor widener I think I mentioned him earlier as as rotation depth, but I, I get the sense that they wouldn't be surprised at all if he were to emerge and, and turn into kind of a late-inning arm for them. Another guy that has been really interesting this spring is uh, J.B. Bukowskis, who is the former Astros first-round pick out of North Carolina, who uh, was part of the Granke trade. It hasn't been smooth for him developmentally as a starter. The stuff has always been amazing. But it just hasn't worked out for whatever reason. Apparently, he had kind of a rough go at the alt site last year. They decided to try him as a, as a reliever only at this point, and he's been going in one inning bursts, and it's been pretty good so far. Um, it's I think he's thrown three perfect innings uh, already at this camp, and it's you know mid nineties fastball. It's a, a slider that people you know put crazy grades on, and then I had people in the uh, on the player development side last year, telling me that the changeup, a pitch that he doesn't throw quite as often as they'd like him to, might be the best changeup in the organization. So I mean, it's a really interesting guy, but that's probably the most intriguing high upside guy that that they have. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Buck I guess his stuff has been a little bit down from the scouts that I've talked to. Davinsky, I don't know exactly how they're going to uh, roll into the season if they're if those guys have an inside track for jobs or what? I would guess that Alex Young is another guy that's probably going to end up with a job in the bullpen. He's he's left-handed and, and not many of these guys are. They don't have very many left-handed options. And yeah, I, I and Taylor Clark is probably another guy that will have a chance. He he took some steps forward I thought last season. Um, but yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's an area of many question marks. I I. I I mean that look that's the case with every bullpen every year, but it just feels like even more so this year.
2: I want to ask about sort of where you see the the franchise's finances shaking out. I think that last year when they traded starling Marte like the understanding that a lot of national observers had was that that was in part motivated by by them knowing that they were just not going to exercise his option for 2021. I know that they have had some rumblings from ownership about a, a bad COVID year, and they're in a, you know, a, somewhat of a rebuilding phase now. So apart from Bumgarner, you weren't expecting that they were going to carry big contracts this season. But what what is the state of the franchise from a payroll perspective? And when do you think they might be in a position where they start to spend a bit more? more?
3: I don't know. I don't think things are good. You know, this is an organization that still has baseball ops employees on pay cuts. And I tried calling around and, and reaching out to people with other clubs. I only found two or three others that I can find that are still on pay cuts. So that's not good. It's not good for morale. Um, and it's, it's not a good indication either of how things are going. As for the Marte thing, I guess I should mention, like, that's one of those Like i don't know where i can't remember where that came from um but it it definitely was reported and it's stuck around for some reason even though the dimebacks kind of laughed at it and immediately shot it down they kind of you know they laughed at it as like oh haha what a silly report like that'll that's obviously not true they didn't even really put too much effort into shooting it down because they thought it was so ridiculous and yet I hear it all the time now, like, I don't think that that's true. I, I I really think that they had every intention of of picking up his option. But yeah, I mean, look, this is a club that's been in like the bottom third to at best, like the, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 range in payroll over the years. I was kind of grappling with how to frame this the other day when we were talking to Dimeback CEO Derek Hall about their, um, their payroll. Because like, I, I think that if you look back over the years with this organization, like they did spend a lot of money in the early going and that obviously helped them win a championship. So it's not like it can't make a big difference. It can make a massive difference if you spend it wisely. But I mean, these guys have made a lot of player personnel mistakes where they've traded guys at the wrong time and and haven't kind of just trusted their you know their uh the internal talent that they've been able to acquire over the years and and develop over the years and and that's probably the biggest reason this team hasn't been able to sustain anything so long answer i i don't i don't know i don't know when they're going to get back to spending money I, i think they need people back in the seats and I think that they're they're hoping to kind of turn themselves into a, a franchise that that doesn't need to spend money that can really be a, a draft and develop type of organization um, going forward. But look, Ken Kendrick has uh, at at times opened the pocketbook. I mean, this is the same guy that gave Greinke the two hundred and six point five million dollar contract that lasted as for a long time as the highest AAV in the game. So it's a complicated question. Like it, it they they never really you know, spend with the, with the big dogs, but they spend enough that it's hard to like be too critical of them. But yeah, I I don't know when they'll, when they'll start spending again, They, they need, they need revenue streams. It seems like.
0: Yeah, speaking of the big dogs, I I asked some variation of this question to Grant Brisby earlier this week when we were previewing the Giants, but how does the presence of the two Titans at the top of this division that are not just great now, but seem positioned to be great as long as we can confidently project the performance of baseball teams relative to the Giants, as you were just saying, the Diamondbacks may be at an even greater disadvantage in terms of resources, at least, so... What is the path? Is there a needle that they can thread to get good and contend with the Padres and the Dodgers, both short-term and long-term?
3: Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's <laughs> it's. I mean, it's been a question with the Dodgers for a long time, right? I mean, just, just the way that they've been able to yeah. not only maintain the huge payroll, but also churn out talent at a crazy level without the benefit of high draft picks and all of that. Uh, it's a it's a really tough spot for for the Diamondbacks to be in. But then, yeah, I mean, then you look at the fact that now the Padres have popped up, and I mean, I just think it, it's kind of embarrassing for the Diamondbacks. It's just hard for the optics to look good, and for a lot of the smaller market teams. But I mean, it's just it's it's hard to it's hard to argue. I mean, and they're they're talking about contending this year. They they think that they have a better club. You know, going back to the very beginning, like they think that this club is a lot better than. It showed last year. They think it's closer to the twenty nineteen team. They 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 think that they can, you know, be in the mix to some degree. But like you can't reasonably look at the projections and expect them to compete for the division title. And it does make you wonder. And it's made me wonder this for a long time. Like should they just kind of take a step back, and and kind of you know try to re uh, reload with that group that they have coming. I mean, it looks like it has a chance to be a, a really good wave of of players. I don't know. Uh, they, they seem really, you know, just fundamentally opposed to that idea. I don't think Kendrick likes the idea of of a full teardown, which I understand. But it also doesn't really feel like they like the idea of, of even a smaller step back. I don't know exactly where baseball operations falls in that. Mike Hazen ha- has recently made it sound like, you know, he doesn't believe in that idea either. When he first got here, the, the sense was that, that if things didn't go well at the beginning of 2017, that they were going to kind of go down that path. That was, that was my read on the situation. Obviously, they had a lot of things go great for them in 2017, and it changed kind of the direction of the franchise. But I, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know how you really like, expect to contend with those guys unless you're kind of loading up and everything kind of, kind of hits right at, all at once, right? yeah i mean like i was saying a minute ago it's just it's kind of it's kind of embarrassing like when you look up and you see the padres spending this much money giving Tatis this massive extension um and the dimex spent like six million dollars this off season that's that's just that doesn't look good
0: so last question before we ask you for the win total prediction the most recent headline on your author page on azcentral.com is Lovello's contract again a hot topic at Deepak's camp. So, why is Tori Lovello's contract a hot topic, and what does that mean for this team?
3: Well, he has the just this one year left. They they kind of tried to spin it the other day. Like uh, Derek Hall's comments on the subject were were very similar to the way that he talked about Paul Goldschmidt back in the day of like you know Goldschmidt had that very team-friendly contract, but, oh, you know, Paul's happy with it. He would never complain about it. We, you know, we don't need to address it because he he wouldn't complain about that and he would never come to us about that. So it's fine. And that's kind of the way that they, that they spun it with, with Lavello the other day of like, yo, sure. It's, it's, uh, he's going into his last season and but, you know, Tori's good with that. He's fine. He, he's, you know, he would never come to us and say that he's unhappy. But I mean, that like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like, of course, if they came to him and said, Hey, would you like to talk about adding a couple of years to your deal, even though it's spring training and yes, your focus should be on the team. Of course he would take a couple of years. So I, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves Tori. He, you never hear anything bad about Tory from people in the organization, but the fact that they haven't really kind of stuck there neck out to say that he's definitely coming back or that he's the manager of the future and all that does make you wonder if this is a bit of a, you know, evaluation type of year. Or if maybe they've already kind of decided, like, maybe we're, you know, probably gonna move on, but we don't feel like we wanna get rid of him quite yet. And why pay two people for, you know, that sort of thing. I don't know. I think it's probably hard to uh expect, you know, great results this year given everything that we've talked about. So it would be kind of unfair to to pin his future on how this club performs, but you know, to his credit, he he has handled it very well. He has said all of the right things. He likes it here. The players like him. I guess we'll just see what happens.
0: Well, on that exciting note, how many games do you think the Diamondbacks will win in twenty twenty one?
3: I guess I'm gonna go with something close to what Vegas has, which is I the last I saw was somewhere in the you know, mid to upper seventies. So, I mean, I guess like 77 would be Mm -hmm. my guess. I I do think that there's a lot of like potential for it, for them to be much better. I think barring like a bunch of injuries or um, trades or something, I don't, I don't think they're a a really bad team. Um, So I don't think that they're going to be a whole lot worse than that. I do think there was a lot of just kind of worst case scenario stuff that played out last year in the short season. I think they're, they're probably better than that. But like I said, I mean, if Catel Marte and Eduardo Escobar and Carson Kelly, uh, you know, all bounce back, if Luke Weaver throws like he did at the beginning of 2019 before he had the arm problems, if Merrill Kelly's, you know, really good three or four starts at the beginning of last year before he got hurt is an indication of what he really is, If, if Bumgarner can, you know, return to form, like, it's not a terrible team, I don't think. I think it could be a good team. I think it could be a contending team. That's just asking a lot for all of those things. To kind of come together i I guess i will say like the years i've all years i've covered this organization like the the years that they're good are the years that we all go in thinking that they're not going to be good um (laughs) and all the things that we think have to happen for the diamondbacks to be good this year you know we're like 2017 like we were probably all like Shelby Miller has to bounce back. They've got to get a better year out of Shelby. Well, no, like he, he got hurt. And Zach Godley came out of nowhere. Like in 2011, like, oh gosh, like Juan Miranda and Russell Brannion. And like the, the, those guys were playing first base at the beginning of the year. And then it ended with Paul Goldschmidt, like stuff, unexpected stuff happens all the time. And maybe the guys that, you know, that they quote unquote need to emerge, like our guys, we don't, even know about or aren't on our radar right now so we'll see i i i sorry long answer i don't think they're that bad i think they could be good but i probably wouldn't bet on it
0: Mm -hmm. all right well to find out if some of those ifs will come to fruition you can follow nick on twitter at nick picoro p-i-e-c-o-r-o you can also find him writing for the arizona republic and az central sports at azcentral.com nick thank you as always for coming on thanks guys All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. We have now passed the halfway point. We have done eight of our Team Preview Podcast episodes, which means we have seven to go. As John Tavner, played by Michael Dorman, says on the second season of Patriot, you don't have to go all the way anyway. You just have to go halfway and one more step. If you can make it halfway and one more step, it's longer to go back and shorter to just finish. So you just finish. That's the way I'm going to look at this season preview series. We'll have another one next time, and we will stick with the... AL Central and talk about the Twins and the Tigers just wanted to offer a brief salute to Nick Markakis, who has officially retired at age 37. Markakis became a recurring character on Effectively Wild for a while, starting with episode 473 back in June of 2014 when Sam did a play index segment where he looked up the best players who had never made an all-star team. And Markakis came up on that search and Sam noted that Markakis had never received an MVP vote either, despite the fact that he certainly should have been an all-star and an MVP vote getter, especially in 2008, his career year with the Orioles, his age 24 season when he was worth seven wins according to Baseball Reference War partly defense-driven, but a very valuable offensive season too. As of 2012, at least, when friend of the show Dan Hirsch looked it up, there were only seven more valuable seasons by position players and by baseball reference were that did not garner an MVP vote. Roberto Clemente in 1968, Willie Davis in 1964, Barry Bonds in 1989, Eddie Matthews in 1963, Troy Gloss in 2000, Brooks Robinson in 1967, and Arky Vaughn in 1936. Anyway, back on that 2014 episode, Sam found... That the player with the highest career war Who had never made an all-star team Or received an MVP vote at that point Was Mark Ellis There are a few players with that war or a higher war Who never got any MVP votes Chet Lemon, Jason Kendall Ron Fairley, Frank White Jeff Cirillo, Ray Durham, Chuck Finley If you count pitchers But each of them had an all-star appearance at some point It's very difficult to be very valuable Without either getting an MVP vote Or an all-star appearance as Mark Ellis was And Mark Hikis seemed to be on track to overtake Ellis in career war. However, he took himself out of consideration in 2018 when he had a hot first half and he made the all-star team for the first and only time in his career. So he does not get the distinction of being the best player who never made an all-star team or got an MVP vote. And if not for that 2018 all-star appearance, he would have done it too, because he ended up just barely surpassing Ellis in career war, at least as war stands now. Mark Hakus is at 34, according to baseball reference, and Ellis is at 33.5. However, Ellis stands alone on that leaderboard for excelling without recognition. And Marquette had a really nice career, of course, 15 years in the big leagues. Above average hitter, pretty good all-around player. Not going to give him Hall of very good, but I'd give him Hall of good hall of quite good hall of above average hall of too good never to have gotten an all-star appearance or an mvp vote by the way he got the mvp vote in 2018 to 18th place he's less than five war behind harold baines for what that's worth and he's another player who was always in the running to get to 3,000 hits and present hall of fame voters with a difficult choice and he didn't get there like a lot of players who have been in that camp before starlin castro and edgar renteria others of that ilk who were sort of on pace to get there with without being great players and just about without fail they end up falling short of that milestone because it's tough to just be average-ish and to stay average-ish long enough to get to 3,000 hits so he ended up at 23.88 quite a respectable total and this is actually pretty impressive i'm subscribed to the baseball reference stat head email newsletter and here's a stat they had on thursday most career put outs as a right fielder in the modern era so since 1901 here's the top 10 Paul Wainer, Roberto Clemente, Dwight Evans, Henry Aaron, Tony Gwynn, Nick Marcakis, Sammy Sosa, Ichiro Suzuki, Al Kaline, and Mel Ott. So that's basically six current Hall of Famers plus Ichiro, who will certainly be a Hall of Famer. Plus Dwight Evans, who probably should be a Hall of Famer, and Sammy Sosa, a borderline Hall of Famer who probably won't get in because of PD suspicions. But that's basically nine Hall of Famers or very close to Hall of Famers and Nick Marcakis with 4,025 career putouts as a right fielder. So again, impressive consistency, impressive longevity, impressive durability, usually missed no more than a handful of games in any given season. A very nice career for Nick Marcakis. Thanks for the memories, Nick, and enjoy your retirement tough to swallow the loss of the career of nick marcakis and the timeless romance of alex rodriguez and jennifer lopez on the same day maybe we'll discuss the j-rod breakup next time once we've dried our tears you can support effectively wild on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks jeffrey young brian beck Daniel Kleinsorge, David Becker, and Gavin Platt. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebookcom group wild. You can rate, review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast@fanGraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will be back to talk to you early next week.